0: Uh, the very beginnings uh, in recent history of uh, the pra- uh, meditation or gamatana tradition in northeast Thailand began with Ajahn Man, Puritatta, Puritatto. He uh, lived about. he was born at the end of last century died at the end of the 40s I think 1949 and uh, of the uh, teachers in northeast Thailand he's the most famous and the so say, the one who began the lineage which uh, Ajahn Chah our teacher was um, uh, he took on subsequent he uh, came after Ajahn Man he uh, lived with Ajahn Man for a short time and carried on the line of teaching from Ajahn Man Lung Ho Man, uh, practicing in those days many many years ago had to deal with a lot of difficulty uh, and hardship in uh, finding the requisites, finding support for, the, for his practice, and with the physical conditions in Northeast Thailand. He lived in uh, remote places, on mountains, in deep forest, uh, but because of his practice was so pure and successful, he very quickly became famous within the circle of. Uh, monks who were interested in meditation particularly in meditation and quickly uh, the group of monks who became his followers uh, expanded to became a, ral- a large number one amongst those was Ajahn Chah and having become inspired to practice with Ajahn Man in the following his <coughs> style of practice the gamatana style, the meditation style he went to live with Ajahn Ginnari who was one of the first generation disciples of Ajahn Man and Ajahn Ginnari was uh, after Ajahn the, the, uh, Ajan who Ajahn Chah looked, up, looked upon as his teacher practicing with Ajahn Ginnari Ajahn Chah practiced um, meditation until he developed very deep samadhi and profound peace of mind and once he he felt stable enough in his meditation practice he then started going off wandering uh, either alone or with small groups of monks around the forests of northeast and central Thailand uh, often seeking out very lonely desolate places where he could practice meditation without being disturbed but also <coughs> these places would be um, places where his, he would be forced to test his own peace of mind often he'd stay in um, Cremation grounds, where people and the local villagers would burn corpses, or even leave um, the corpses of the dead villagers just lying in the cremation ground, gradually rotting away. And for Thais, this would be the, perhaps the most scary place on earth because the fear of ghosts amongst Thais very, very strong, perhaps stronger than Westerners, and uh, it's the tradition of meditation monks to go and stay in such places to uh, confront the fear that they have in their minds we all have, we all have fear and it's a way of uh, testing their own meditation and he uh, briefly you could say uh, practicing in this way confronting his own fear of uh, death many many times he actually got to the point where he uh, went beyond any kind of fear got beyond all kind of fear in later years Ajahn Chah would tell his um, disciples that it was practicing like this going through all sorts of difficulties and hardships and staying in lonely places, fearful places, having meditated with corpses <coughs> stayed in forests where there were uh, dangerous animals such as tigers around he said this, the result of this was that he gained the Dhamma and uh, he would impart some of that Dhamma, try to impart as much of that Dhamma as he could to his disciples in later years there was also another Ajahn, a teacher of Ajahn Chah his name was Ajahn Tongrat who uh, Ajahn Chah gained a lot from and would recount in later years some of the stories and teachings he received from Ajahn Tongrat his style was that similar <coughs> to a, a Zen teacher He wouldn't give long discourses and explanations of the Dhamma. He'd give, um, rather, he'd give shorter teachings which were um, perhaps applicable in certain situations. Ajahn Tongra was also a disciple of Ajahn Mun. And one time when he was living in his early years, living with Ajahn (coughs) Mun, Ajahn Mun would give the teaching to all of his monks that they should try to eat little sleep little and meditate a lot and Ajahn Tongrat taking this teaching to heart went on a 15 day fast and at the end of the fast it was the um, Patimokha day the day when all the monks come together for the recitation of the the discipline and during the meeting of the the recitation of the discipline when all the monks were sitting together in silence very formally he suddenly took off his jiwan, his monk's robes and uh, he said, Ajahn Mun, you taught us to eat little, well here I am, I'm about to die, I haven't had any food for 15 days Ajahn Mun answered that he taught the monks to eat little, but he didn't teach them to not eat anything at all he said, you have to contemplate my teachings, understand what I mean the idea is to find the right amount of food not just to stop eating altogether there was once an old monk living with Ajahn Thongrat who having ordained in life uh, when he was older found it difficult to do the training in the same way as younger stronger monks would he found it difficult to learn the chanting and learn the the ropes of the, the bhikkhu life but Ajahn Tongrat found a way to teach him there was um, one day they were walking they saw a, a tree stump in a field and he said to the old monk that he should make his mind as firm as the heartwood of the tree stump and you could see the, the heartwood uh, showing through this older monk took that teaching away with him and practiced it uh, and Tongrat had elaborated to make your mind firm as firm as the heartwood inside the the crinkly old bark means that you should make your mind as firm as you can as you experience sense objects with your eye that's the the sense basis the internal sense basis the eyes ears, nose, tongue, body, mind and the external sense bases, forms sounds, smells, tastes, body sensations and thoughts. As you experience all these you should make your mind as firm, keep it in the middle, not get caught into liking, disliking. And the old monk took this simple teaching away and practiced very diligently with it even though he couldn't uh, necessarily do some of the external aspects of the monk's life he wasn't very good at it because he was old but this very simple teaching he took it to heart and uh, obtained very good results with it another (coughs) story of was there was a place where the villagers didn't know much about um, monks, they wouldn't offer food to monks when they were on arms round and Ajahn Tomrat went there and um, he stood <coughs> in the village and he just kept standing there until in, in the end the villagers realised what, what was going on and they came out and brought food to him he didn't actually, the food he got, he obtained, he didn't actually eat it himself, he gave it away someone asked him why he did this, he said he, he was um, teaching the villagers to uh, practice uh, dhana, generosity to practice giving up attachment to their food this is another, another little teaching of Ajahn Thongrat Ajahn Thongrat, Ajahn these were Ajahn Chah's first two after Ajahn Mun were, were his first two teachers he spent most time of his time with in his early years and are also walking around on walking tour on what we call Tudong and then after a length of time I can't remember I think it was his 15th reigns he came back to his home village which is where the forest of Ba Pong is and that's where he set up he was invited by his relatives to, to set up there permanently So he, he uh, set up in the what was originally a very big forest with, still with wild animals in it which is now known as Wapapong, the, the monastery his monastery in the early years at Wapapong malaria was very bad most of the monks got it and it was, uh, in those days there wasn't so much medicine, so it was potentially uh, very dangerous, it could die easily. So Ajahn Chah told the monks that if you've got malaria, you have to come out uh, of your hat, come out and meet with the Sangha, so that we know what's going on, we know that you've got malaria. Uh... The tendency is, is, if you're ill, you just want to lie in your hut and keep quiet. But he, he made it a rule that you actually have to, cu- if you're ill, you actually have to come out of your hut so that other people know that you're ill. In those days, uh, northeast Thailand, very poor, and food, you didn't get a lot on arms round. Monks didn't get a lot on arms round. Might just get a few bananas. Uh, and it wasn't unknown. Occasionally, they wouldn't just eat the uh, the fruit of the banana; they'd eat the banana peel as well. The reason that they the monks put up with the hardship was because they had gone there to practice <coughs> out of faith in the the religion, and in particular, in Cha Ajahn Chah as an enlightened teacher. And their their aim was to practice meditation they, they, were, they were interested in seeking the highest fruits from the religion so they were prepared to put up with all that hardship the uh, group of monks who were living with Ajahn Chah gradually uh, grew in number and he'd constantly be uh, encouraging them to practice as hard as they could uh, one time he said it was on the 25th anniversary of the monastery of establishing the monastery (coughs) that if uh, just one monk in the group found enlightenment then the monastery would be worth it was worth building the monastery and all all the practice and hardship that people had gone through Uh, he would usually lead meditation in the evenings he'd lead the monks and the local people to practice meditation at six o'clock in the evening and then do evening chanting though in the last couple of years when he was was ill he had to stop that he, he didn't have the strength to do that anymore in the first period up to well, while he was still strong in teaching he, uh, his various disciples when they were established in the practice they tend to go off and set up branch monasteries and in the first period there was nineteen branch monasteries <coughs> and that uh, say tradition of his disciples moving off going on walking tours on Tudong or going to visit different Buddhist uh, groups of Buddhists around both northeast Thailand and even further afield <coughs> has continued, the number of branch monasteries has continued to grow to the present day this is just a, a brief history of the practice of Ajahn Chah and what, uh, what Nongba if we get the chance in the next few days I'll, I'll give you some more about, about the history about Ajahn Chah's practice but for tonight I'll just give you this much if anybody has any questions, feel free to oh, no.
1: One thing, one thing mentioned say: If one of the monks get enlightened in the temple, that there is a refuge. But how could one know? Would he declare that he has attained enlightenment? Or will any signs to recognize the fact?
0: his actual words he'd speak quite generally say it would be good if uh, one or even many monks the way of saying it is like straightened out their views so their views were in line with the Dhamma but he would never actually say this monk has attained Dhamma at this level or that level he would never talk quite precisely like that he'd speak more generally Uh, there was there was one monk at Wobbopong he were, there was a group of monks talking about this, this subject about who might be uh, enlightened and which monk was at which level and uh, one monk had a very strong feeling in his mind that he, he felt it was almost as if Ajahn Chah was speaking in his head and uh the words he heard were like one disciple of the Buddha doesn't uh, what's the hell would you say doesn't doesn't tell or doesn't try and tell where, where another disciple of the Buddha is at what level he's at Say so it's inappropriate to look around at the other other people practicing and try and tell which, which person is at what level
1: Of those monks who leave
0: the monastery to open up their own monasteries uh, it's part of the monks discipline the Vinaya that you have to stay with your teacher for the first five years but once you uh, practice for five years then according to the Vinaya you're actually free to go off on your own say wandering going to different places and and uh, When monks left Ajahn Chah, he didn't tell anybody to go and uh, build a monastery or start a monastery. His words would always be to the effect, uh, go and meditate. And usually what would happen was monks would go off (coughs) moving around without any uh, place in mind necessarily. But then as they'd moved off to different uh, villages, different forests, then on, along the way they might meet, meet a, a group it's usually let's say a village would invite a monk to stay on and a monastery would sort of happen by itself <laughs> they, they didn't actually go off with a specific intention to, go, to build a monastery Ajahn Anand gave his own example when he left Ajahn Chah the first time there was um, a group of people on the edge of Bangkok on a province right next to Bangkok at where they uh, had invited monks to go, and he went with another monk to stay there. But Ajahn Chah didn't tell them to go and build a monastery, but he he just said go and meditate. And now, after many years, the monastery there there is a monastery there, it's well established, but that wasn't their original intention. And it, it says in the early years that that place where you're staying on the edge of Bangkok <coughs> it wasn't a sure thing that they would actually build the monastery there gave the example there was a, one year there was very bad flooding so when the floods came they, they put the uh, Buddha Rupa in a cupboard locked it up and they went off on walking tour <laughs> Do you have a
2: question?
0: Um, so why do a person have fear and how do you
2: overcome fear? So, sorry, I didn't hear. I why
0: do a person have fear um. and how do you overcome fear? So when Ajahn Chah was practicing in his early years, and he'd go to these places like the cremation ground, <coughs> he'd have the most extreme fear maybe stay awake all night through fear through fear, and uh, he'd be sitting in his mosquito net See monks in Thailand have an umbrella with a mosquito net and uh, he'd just have his robes and he'd have his arms bowl and he was so afraid he'd ha- take his arms bowl to be a friend he'd say it almost like hug his arms bowl out of fear and nothing else to, to depend on and the way he contemplated was to ask himself in his mind well what am I afraid, afraid of? and uh, the answer would be well, death so the would answer well where can I go to get away from death? and the answer is there's nowhere because wherever you go you're going to die one day there's no place that you can't get away from death and contemplating like this uh, in the end he felt there was some part of his mind that completely sort of left left his mind, and he completely went beyond fear, con- just contemplating like this back and forth. There were, the fear completely left him. And fear, what fear is, is <coughs> because you are attached or you love your body very deeply. So any threat to the body or anything you think is going to threat, threaten you or harm you brings out fear so if you don't attach to the body then you won't have fear from Ajahn Anand's own experience um, when he first ordained he was an Ajahn Chah's monastery out at the back of the monastery they had a cremation ground very sort of dark eerie place and every time he walked on arms round, he'd walk past this place and he'd notice he had a sense of fear dislike for that place, There was, in those days there was no electricity or anything around it was very sort of quiet and uh, scary place his first rains, he'd walk past this cremation ground every day for a couple of months noticing how he's afraid of it so after a while he decided that if his meditation was going to be a any real value to him then he should test himself out and so one night he took his robes and went into the cremation ground He says when you you go to a place where you have fear in the beginning all you can do is um, rely on your endurance patience and endurance as the fear comes up (coughs) but if you have endurance then you, you can use that and work with the fear contemplate the fear uh, and by chance Ajahn Chah one of his habits was to walk around the monastery late at night just checking on things and that night he was walking around and he came, came up to Ajahn where Ajahn Anand, a newly ordained Ajahn Anand was sitting meditation <coughs> probably uh, had the thought to give a bit of encouragement to the new monk who was fighting with fear and Ajahn Nun carried on practicing in in the same way going off to when he had the chance he might go off to a cremation ground (coughs) where there were dead bodies or the remains of dead bodies around he might even there was one time he took a a skull from a, a as a skeleton on the ground he took the skull and put it on a post and then practice walking uh, meditation walking Chunkra back and forth next to the skull just to keep contemplating fear he'd practice uh, maintaining his meditation say um, maintaining his ability to enter Samadhi and then when he came out of Samadhi when his mind was peaceful then he'd contemplate exactly what fear was and um Say, looking around, say, at a, a skeleton, looking at bones, he'd see that the bones were just bones. The fear was something that he'd uh, created in his own mind. There was no real substance essence to the fear. It was just something he'd created in his mind through thinking. What he was afraid of, the bones were just bones. Um. <coughs> nice you like to talk about
2: friendship. Um, in, um, in the that friendship has been uh, the practice of invariably they wanted to be the, the noble uh, of, the the of the the Right. And then he means the noble pleasure. He thinks that very important. But then again, we go on and hear that in practice, we practice in isolation, to be alone, to go off to the end of the great house. And then we. And also, again, they say. In other parts that describe the breath as one seven-fold body, isolating it even further. Um, <coughs> a, 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 these thoughts are coming up in the mind as he talk about uh, the downward breath. And if I may ramble on it, and also that. The practice in order to do that as a people for loneliness um, but there are certain senses like that but I still seem the light and keep it so important when the Buddha has said that's the practice the noble frame is all of the practice um, then it's in relation to some that's like people when that the, 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 and the, the So again, I talk about this, this relationship, this friendship, and yet it seems like in, in the practice one has to be alone and yet we talk about in the it's in being alone, and so alone,
0: being alone, being alone, the story came along, but came along, came along, and said, You believe my Not as I believe the yeah. Buddha, uh, Buddhism, the Buddha, in the beginning, the Buddha practiced, became enlightened, and started teaching what we call Buddhism and the uh, Sangha or the Arya Sangha arose because the Buddha was teaching uh, the way to enlightenment. So in the very beginning uh, the Buddha was say the ultimate or the complete Kalyanamita because all all the disciples who became enlightened were totally dependent on the Buddha any teachings, if there hadn't been a Buddha they, nobody would have become enlightened and so here is like the original or, Kalyanamitta and uh, that aspect of the Buddha and uh, uh, teaching his disciples until I became enlightened and disciples, teaching disciples that is one important aspect of mitha another aspect of it is the teachings or the Dhamma is also the taliyanamitta because we have to depend on, to practice the Dhamma we have to depend on the teachings we have to think about them, contemplate them and, and bring them into our hearts so in that sense, although sometimes the practice seems to be uh, kind of lonely or we're practicing inner isolation what we're doing is bringing the <laughs> Dhamma inside us by contemplating the teachings and uh, depending on the teachings that's another aspect of Karyanamita and then in practice uh, the Bhikkhu Sangha some of their time and then it's spent on personal practice each individual visitor will spend some time doing his own, own personal pa- practice uh, say alone in more isolated situations but the fruit of his practice he'll bring back and teach the laity share it with the laity, laity. and that some visitors will go off or go into a situation where they're more alone and then come back and teach others will teach and then go off uh, sort of there are these two aspects to the to the practice which go together. Uh, an example is one my uh, in the early days. Uh, he's building they're going to build a big meditation hall and they' are preparing the building materials, preparing the wood,
1: the planks and things.
0: But uh, in the process of it, the monks were doing it for most of the work themselves he got really fed up with building about mm. building yeah. you know, I he didn't uh, he wasn't very inspired with it I guess so he, he went off sort of sneaked away off um, to do some meditation get some uh, time alone away from the monastery from all the building and in later years and then after that he came back obviously carried on but in later years he said if maybe if he hadn't gone off that time he might not have uh, understood the Dhamma as much as he had, as he uh, might have in other words he was saying that going off from that time he probably practiced very well when he went off alone but he came back and he shared the Dhamma that he gained from that period alone with everybody and um, he said if he hadn't gone off alone that time maybe there wouldn't be so many branch monasteries as there are today meaning that perhaps it was the periods he spent alone practicing alone is when he really learned to understand the Dhamma he came back, shared that Dhamma with people and then they in turn went off practice and the fruits of their practice meant that other monks went off, set up monasteries and so on he was uh, implying that it's an important part of the practice to have time, each individual has to have some some time on their own for their own practice before they, they teach.
2: Okay.
0: Does that it, it answer, answer your question? And
1: Michael, mm, I guess my question was perhaps in a similar sort of direction. <laughs> uh, living here in Melbourne, um, <laughs> and, uh, no cremation and grounds. Um, then it's a long way from the uh, time and even in Melbourne, is a very simple you know, device. As a you, know, you know, we moderate our hearts a little. So some people in Melbourne would still see our lives as being extremely I and mean, um, the have the uh, opportunity for existence, in society is quite great. So I was just wondering what Skonte what would you like to say about the translation of that sort of lifestyle or those sort of insights into the practice that I think there's, there's in this world.
2: the main
0: benefit of um, hearing about the lives of different teachers and how they practice even though the external conditions are here are perhaps different from the forests of North Thailand the important thing uh, is to take them as examples, see them as examples of people who've uh, had endurance, particularly patience and endurance to work with their own minds To continue the practice, it wasn't uh, all sort of smooth, um, constant, say, success for all these different teachers. They all had to go through periods where um, meditation was difficult, they had different problems, but the that he's relating these stories is to uh, help give you some encouragement to push through the various problems you have in practice and to keep keep at it uh, and you need some endurance for that because there's, there's obviously going to be periods when say if you're at home you don't feel some days you might feel uh, you don't really want to come out say to hear this center, Buddha Loka Center to meditate but to try and um when you do feel lazy or depressed or try and rouse yourself maybe you can think of these uh, these various teachers the Buddha or these teachers who have pushed, pushed through their various difficulties you can use them for inspiration to uh, get up a bit of energy to push through your own difficulties he says he's very impressed with um, your dedication to practice and. Uh, what you should do is just to continue building on every little uh, build on these foundations with every little bit of effort Uh, you have just to keep uh, developing your meditation if you keep doing it regularly and consistently you uh, will be rewarded (laughs)
2: Thailand the boys
0: in the office although most most, um, most of the data are cremated, but in northeast North Thailand particularly, it's still the tradition in some places though if um, somebody's died, say in a motor accident or has been murdered they won't burn them they'll bury them but often before they bury them they'll just leave them out or even sometimes they'll just bury them very lightly with a very small amount of earth on top and uh, so it's still possible to practice in a cremation ground in that situation where there is a corpse maybe you can actually see the corpse and can sit meditation in front of it there's a monastery actually didn't say this but I'll just add it as a in addition uh, there's a monastery, one of our branch monasteries where the abbot, you might have heard of him, Ajem he's now disrobed now but uh, he's an Australian and he was a, the abbot of a monastery for about eight years I think he's a very big forest and occasionally when villagers from the surrounding villages died in such circumstances there was one guy who's died who was killed, was shot another I think died from some disease but anyway they brought the villagers brought the uh, bodies into the monastery into a designated area it was a very big forest but they set aside a part of the forest and they put the bodies, just left them in um, an open kind of pit they, they did, built, dug a shallow pit and put the bodies there but they didn't—they didn't cover them over—and then many, many different monks had the chance to practice meditation, maybe even set up their mosquito necks right next to the body for several days at a time, and they could live and just contemplate the, watch the body as it decomposed. I myself was doing that the night Ajahn Chah died. I was next to one of these corpses, just sort of—it was like a, just left as a skeleton. It started off as a sort of a just a, somebody who died a few days and over the period of a few weeks few months just the flesh sort of dried and disappeared and there's just a skeleton left they don't use
2: coffins
0: uh, coffins no just simple wooden coffins if they burn someone that, this is in the villages not in the towns but in the villages they'll use just a simple wooden coffin and burn it or if it's somebody who they bury the Maybe they don't even use a coffin, they just put them straight in the ground or on, on the ground even. still very simple in some places.
1: In the body was how, long, how, how, how many days after the body was killed did you start on the body?
0: That one, I imagine it had been there a few weeks, but uh, that's because I came along afterwards but some of the bodies just within a few days monks had the chance to go and contemplate when they still they were still like sort of moist to had worms in them <laughs> So when you, when, you t- uh, when you contemplate do you actually watch or just close
1: your eyes and still? What the is the uh,
0: situation? Fairly simple just to contemplate the impermanence of the body looking at a, a dead body or a place say, if it's buried there's usually a strong smell but just to contemplate the impermanence of that body and impl- the impermanence of your own body comparing and the uh, because you're with with a dead body it, it has all that more stronger impression on the mind But the contemplation itself is very simple. (coughs) (coughs) The tradition is that if somebody dies through what you could say is natural causes say through disease or old age then they'll uh, keep the body at the house for a certain number of days, three days seven days and there'll be monks come and chant but if uh, somebody dies in an accident or is murdered the feeling is that they've died before their time is up so to speak they've died quicker than usual and as a a sense of being that something that's sort of something uh, unfortunate, bad luck, and so they'll quickly take the body away to the cremation ground and b- uh, bury it as quickly as possible, rather than <coughs> keeping it in the house. it's sort of it's feeling that they'd rather not have uh, bring bad luck into the house. Any, any object which makes the mind peaceful in such a situation is okay uh, there's no set thing sort of you should pre- contemplate impermanence or you should do mindfulness of the breathing whatever works the important thing to see is that in such a place a place where you have strong fear coming up it makes you very mindful you're sort of, you know, every sound, every little tremor your, your, your mind is right there and uh, that's why it's very good for meditation because it makes you very mindful and you see very easily that if you let your mind stray and start proliferating, thinking about what you're afraid of very quickly you get caught up in the fear and you're thinking, you're imagining shapes and things in the, in the shadows all sorts of things and that's why it's good for meditation you see if you cut off your, the, the thought proliferation then you can cut through the fear very quickly and so whatever you can use whatever meditation object works in that situation that's, that's what you should use time in his third reigns he was in a cremation ground meditating and a young school girl was on her way to school had to use a a boat to cross some water on her way to school and the boat capsized and she died she drowned and then they came and buried her because she died in that way they buried her in the cremation ground and so he was meditating right next to her grave Uh, and then one afternoon as he was there, some people turned up with some soft drinks for him and he was surprised that, he didn't, you know, that they knew he was there so he asked them, Why, how did you know I was here, you brought these soft drinks to offer how did you know I was here meditating and they said last night the, uh, the ghost of the girl came and told us <laughs> and that just made him more, even more afraid because then he realised the ghost was hanging around right next to him (laughs) he says your uh, perceptions of things and your defilements all all become very extreme when you're in a a situation like that if you're in a cremation ground and very frightened he said like this morning we went to the botanical gardens it's very beautiful i I'm very impressed with how beautiful it was laid out very nice trees big trees but if you're in a cremation ground then every big tree becomes really frightening total opposite i mean just the same big trees but they, they suddenly become very frightening and uh, in thailand you get um, there's a lot of insects there and in the middle of the night you get this uh, as cicadas and different insects make this buzzing sound, and that becomes very, very frightening. At the same time, anything that's kind of that you can cling to as a friend, you, you cling to any kind of any object as a friend. So, like, as you're saying, Ajahn Chah would cling to his bowl as a friend when he was in that situation. Ajahn Anand said, when he was in the cremation ground. There'd be the sound of the wake-up bell in the local monastery. It'd be a long way off, but he'd just hear the sound of the bell at 3 a.m., and that would be like a friend coming to help him, because the mind is just in such a kind of uh, unstable state. If if you uh, let your proliferation, the proliferation, prolif- proliferating mind uh, run away, then you, you just you just see. Ghosts in every shadow, and sort of everything becomes really frightening. So all the, but all this proliferation, and all the, all the trouble becomes, comes from the fact that we attach to the sense of self. If there's a sense of self, if there's a me, then there are ghosts. There's all sorts of nasty things out there that can come and hurt me, this me that you're attached to at the same time if you uh, contemplate and see non-self anatta you're not attached to your body and your mind you're not attached to this sense of self then at the same time all the things outside external things which can come and harm the sense of self, they all disintegrate and disappear at the same time so the way, the way, place you have to practice is within you Within your own understanding, that if you can let go of the sense of self, then all the fear will go.
1: So this is sort of a related idea, but it's not so common here, but it's just more common here. Fears of uh, people sort of seeing evil forces to possess you, and these can become quite overpowering in some
2: people
0: the way to do that to deal with that is to um, meditate make your mind as peaceful as you can in your meditation and then kind of imagine or determine all your uh, psychic energy or your the peaceful energy you've generated in your meditation to make a kind of force field around your body just to think I, all my uh, good energy here good vibes uh, are protecting me from any evil or unpleasant forces you could uh, contemplate one of the the 32 parts of the body and do the same thing just contemplate uh, Use, use one of the 32 parts as a meditation object to uh, calm the mind and the, uh, that sense of calmness that arises just contemplating that one of the parts of the body again use that as a kind of force field to protect yourself say may the power of the Dhamma, the calm mind that sees the Dhamma protect, protect, my, protect me from any evil forces
2: the five precepts
0: that is one way of protecting your soul the soul is protecting the soul of the soul it does on a, on one level it's the pr- keeping of the five precepts is a protection but to be a, say a, a more proficient or more complete protection it ha- should be Combined with the practice of meditation, you know, one makes one's mind firmer through meditation, and then the keeping of the five precepts
2: becomes firmer.